Well, in uh, the last week, we heard the news that uh, Steve Jobs had the uh, one of the co-founders of Apple Computers had died. Is there a PowerPoint? Great. And in 2005, he addressed the graduates at Stanford uh, University, and uh, these are some of the things. This is a quote from what he said in that uh, in that talk to them. When I was 17, I read a quote that went something like, If you live each day as if it were your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. It made an impression on me. And since then, for the past 33 years, I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, If today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I'm about to do today? Whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Now there's some practical wisdom there, isn't there? To live with the reality that uh, today could be your last day brings just some clarity to how we want to live our lives. Philip Gould, who was Tony Blair's strategist for New Labour, was interviewed last month by Andrew Marr. Um, Next slide. After being told that he had no more than three months to live. And he spoke very movingly of the intensity of living life in the death zone, as he put it. Life is so precious, and it should not be wasted. Now, the Bible affirms this and actually heightens it in at least two additional ways. Firstly, that after death comes judgment. Each one of us will be called to give an account to uh, God, the holy God who made us, for the lives that we have lived. So in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says this, Man is destined to die once, And after that, to face judgment. And this really makes every day count even more. Because we know that death is coming, and we know that beyond death, we will face God as our judge. And this reality that we will all meet God at the checkout, and that there are two eternal conscious outcomes beyond that, should really shape every single day of our lives with, with greater significance. A truly wise person lives not only with the reality of death, but with the reality of judgment. And the second way that, uh, that the Bible heightens this understanding is not just that we're in the death zone, but we're in the battle zone. So please open your Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 5, and you'll find this on page 1176 in the church Bibles. Page 1176 in the church Bibles. How should we live knowing that we're living in the death zone and in the battle zone? Well, listen to these words. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, 
but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's Word. Keep your Bible open. We're going to work through this passage this morning. How should we live knowing that we're in the death zone, that we're in the battle zone? Well, there's three things. And it falls off this one main heading. Walk carefully. Verse 15. Be very careful then how you live. When you're waking up on the front line or behind enemy lines, you're going to live quite differently to sort of waking up in peacetime uh, under your duvet back in your own country. Uh, Sandhurst was a documentary that was um, on the Beeb over the last uh, three weeks, and it, it followed through a group of uh, cadets who wanted to be officers in the British Army. And it was a fascinating uh, documentary. The, the training officers picked up on every single detail of their lives. Every morning, their room was inspected. And, and the slightest failure, the slightest imperfection was thoroughly verbally punished. Every detail mattered. And on one overnight trip, uh, a cadet uh, was asked to check his map, at which point he had to reveal that he'd lost his map. Now, his officer shared some choice words with him, which I will not exactly quote in church. But he went crazy with him. I made the point, if if, if he lost that map when they were um, fighting the enemy, and the enemy were to find that map, it could be over for his platoon. Their positions would be laid out, and they could be wiped out. See, when there's an enemy about that is seeking to do us harm, then we live very carefully. Every detail matters. We want to live with accuracy and care. And this is the perspective of the, of, of the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 6 and verse 11. We're going to get to this uh, sometime in November, but have a look at chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand. So here's what God's word has to say to us. Life is precious. It is short. And the enemy is real. And so as we walk about life, we should do so with great care. And there's three ways that 
he specifically outlines this in these verses. And each contain a not but statement. Not buts. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Not but. So firstly, living carefully means that we're going to be wise with our time. Verse 16. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Everybody gets 60 minutes, an hour, 24 hours a day. We all get the same amount of time. The the only real question is, are we going to use them wisely? Not as unwise... Paul says, but as wise. Uh, Living wisely has the idea of kind of redeeming time. Making it count. Snapping up every opportunity that is presented to us in the time that God gives us. And that's important not only because time is limited, but because the enemy is busy. We're living in evil days. And so living carefully is about being purposeful with the use of our time. Are you and I, are we purposeful the way we use our time? Now I think that uh, we all need leisure and rest. And um, God made us so that, um, that we need sleep. Uh, we, we, uh, we don't function well without sleep. He even commands in the Ten Commandments that we should have a day off, a week, a Sabbath rest. So God believes in rest. But living wisely uh, involves not only a commitment to rest and leisure, but a commitment to work. A commitment to use our time productively and intentionally. And so if I can just address the students uh, this morning. Uh, You know, let me tell you, you have more time than you'll ever have in your whole of your life. Now, you really don't think this. I know you don't think this. But I, I did two degrees. One, as, an, you know, as a single guy, I did a dental degree. And then I did a theology degree with a wife and kids where I had to work. And let me tell you, you have so much time if you're not married with kids right now and doing a degree. Are you planning how you use your time? Do you have a calendar? Do you have a day planner? Do you write things into it? Do you follow the plan? Uh, let me tell you that that the most important things in life are generally non-urgent. They're non-urgent. Um, the truth is that it will not feel terribly urgent to be, to be giving yourself to studying your subject at university right now. There's lots of other attractions, aren't there? There's lots of other distractions. Uh, but let me tell you, a day is coming when your lack of effort right now will be exposed and it will be embarrassing. It is, it is non-urgent, but it is important. And, and, you know, it's the same with our life in Christ, isn't it? The most important things are seldom urgent. It seldom feels like an urgent thing to read your Bible each day. It seldom feels like an urgent thing to have to pray, to, to come to church, to, to, to go to a Bible study. But let me tell you that The knowledge of God is more important than anything you're going to study at university or college. And so the question is, are you using your time effectively? Have you got a plan of of what is the most important, non-urgent things? Do you put those in your diary first? 
so that when the non-urgent things come along, you can say to people, well, uh, the urgent things that aren't that important come along, you say, well, actually, I'm sorry, I've got things booked in, but I could fit you in some other time. The, the truth is, you see, if we do not plan our lives, other people will plan it for us. Have you worked that out yet? And if we don't plan, it really will not happen. Even if you plan, it might not happen. If you do not plan, it definitely will not happen. That's true, isn't it? Let me say to um, married people here today, it never seems that urgent to sit down and spend time talking to your spouse or going out for a date. In fact, life is so busy. But the lack of that intentional care and time with your spouse will be exposed down the track unless we make space for it. And let me talk to dads here. Do you know what? Uh, your children will never beg you to open the Bible around the uh, meal table and to pray with them. They'll never beg you to do that. But it is so vital that we as, as husbands and as fathers make that a priority. And we show that priority to our kids. If we do not plan it, we will not do it. That's the truth, isn't it? So can I encourage you very specifically to take some time out today, maybe take an hour today to plan this week ahead. Uh, Get out your iCal, get out your Google Calendar, whatever groovy Android device you've got, and and, and plan out, okay, what are the the most important things that I'm just going to put in right now before all the other stuff crashes in? One of the kindest things my dad uh, did for me uh, was whenever he saw me wasting my time at home when I was uh, at high school, he would say to me, Redeem the time, Paul. The days are evil. It used to drive me nuts, quite frankly. It used to drive me nuts. But when I was a long way from home, studying dentistry, and I was aware I was a messing about with my time and wasting my time, Dad's voice would haunt me. And I'd hear him. Redeem the time. The days are evil, which is just uh, the King James translation of this verse, making the most of every opportunity. That intensity of life that Philip Gould was talking about comes when we realize that time is limited. We get a little taste of this, don't we, when um, someone we love has to go away on a trip or has to head back to the city where they live and you're separated. And, and you know you've just got four hours left and they're going to go they're going to leave now it's precious isn't it you don't want to waste that time you don't want to waste it having stupid arguments they're leaving soon time is precious time is limited living in the intensity of the death zone you know we live in a time where we have so many gadgets that are there supposedly to make us have you know use our time effectively these amazing smartphones that most people spend all their time doing ridiculous Facebook messages and playing Angry Birds. And uh, so this tool that's supposed to make us effective ends up just wasting our time. And we have the World Wide Web, all these articles, all these blogs, so much information, it's information overload, and we can't actually cope with just sitting down and reading a book, a good book. And so the question is, in this hurly-burly life, are we planning to do the things that are most important but not urgent? In our lives, are we wasting time or are we redeeming time? 
in our church life, in our ministry? Are we wasting time? Are we redeeming time? It's so important because the days are evil. First way, we redeem the time by being wise with our time. Second way, we live carefully by knowing the Lord's will. Verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The key to not being foolish, the key uh, to being wise with our time is what? What is it? Yeah, knowing the Lord's will. Knowing the Lord's will. When people speak of um, the Lord's will for their lives, they often mean personal guidance. You know, who should I marry? Uh, what job should I do? What course should I study? But the most important th- thing to work out before you ask that question is this question. What is God's plan for history? Before you get down to all that little small less significant details about your life. Here's the most significant thing. What's God's big plan for history? Get that worked out first. What is God doing? What is the Lord Jesus seeking to accomplish within the world? The foolish thing is to do something that is heading in the opposite direction to what the Lord is trying to do. Because if you keep pushing in the opposite direction of the Lord is is going, let me tell you, uh, your efforts will be futile. They'll end up nowhere. And the people who walk through life carefully obey this command to know, study, and get the significance of the Lord's will. And that's why kind of regular study of the Bible is so vital in the life of the Christian. Because guess what? God has revealed His will. God has revealed His plan. Look back at chapter 1. Verse 9. And he, God, God the Father, has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Here's God's revealed plan. This is where history is heading. He's summing up all things in heaven and earth under the, the, the rule, the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the plan. That's where history is going. Uh, there's a day coming when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's, that's the destination point. That's where we're heading to. Uh, so Paul uh, writes out, tells them, re- the this plan of God. And then, what does he do? Chapter 1, verse 15 onwards, he prays that they will really get it. So look at um, 1, verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. He's already told them what the Lord's will is. And then he says, I'm praying that you'll really get it. You'll really grasp it. 
That, that God will uh, open up your heart so you'll really grab hold of this will, this plan, this purpose in Christ. But more than that too, he talks about his plan for a new united humanity. Look at chapter 2 and verse 15. Halfway through uh, verse 15, it says this. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them, that is Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross of the Lord Jesus, by which he put to death their hostility. God created a, a beautiful world. We messed it up with our rebellion and our sin. And we, 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 our, our, our separation from God has, has made us separate from one another, bringing hostility and hatred. And what the Lord Jesus came to accomplish in his death on the cross was a way that our sin could be forgiven, the way that we could be restored back into relationship with God and therefore back into relationship with one another. When he deals with our sin, we have a mechanism for forgiveness and reconciliation that brings all sorts of people back together again. Do you remember that video about the Hutu and the Tutsis in Rwanda? That's the power of the gospel, bringing people together in a profound unity in Christ. The church is God's new humanity. And the church is at the center of God's purposes in the world, he goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 10. Look across at chapter 3, verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you get it. He's reminding them again. Do you know what God's will is? Do you know what his plan and purpose is? Well, actually, he's taking sinful rebels, he's uniting them to himself, to the Lord Jesus, and he's bringing them together in the church. And the church is the very place, it's the center of God's purposes for the whole of history. Because it is in the church that the glory of God is being revealed to the cosmos, as the cosmos looks on and goes, what a glorious wise God. They can bring such strange misfits together into one place in unity and holiness and uh, working together for his glory. What a great God he is. The church is revealing the glory of God to the cosmos. The church is at the center of his purposes. And having said that, he then prays that they'll get that. See the pattern here? He tells them it's happening and he prays that they'll get it. Look at chapter 3 verse 17. Or verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So he's told them God's big plan for the universe. And then he says, and I pray, I pray the Lord that you'd have the power to grasp and get hold of this plan. And then we get to chapter 5. And he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Understand is a command. Get it. Get it. Grab.
grasp it. He's told them what it is. He asks God that God will help them grasp it. And then he says to them, get it. Grab hold of it. Shape your lives according to the will of the Lord. That's the point. Well, have we got it? Have we got it? Do our lives reveal that we understand the big plan of God? See, if, if, if what God is accomplishing through the gospel of the Lord Jesus, reconciling men and women together in churches, that the church is the center of God's purposes, then, and we're called to be a united people, we're called to be a, uh, a humble people using our diverse gifts, building each other up in love, if we're called to be walking in holiness and love and light and walk wisely, if this is what he's revealed, then all the other smaller stuff of our lives, all the other decisions start, start, making, start getting a bit easier, I think, when we've got that in place. Now, here's the normal conventional way of thinking. Get a job. Find somewhere near to where you work. And thirdly, if you're a Christian... Uh, have a hunt around see if you can find a good church isn't that the conventional way of thinking now the question is is that way of thinking showing that we understand the will of the Lord do you think that that plan shows that we've really understood God's big plan if we've really understood God's big plan might it not be exactly the opposite way around number one Find a church where I can be an active gospel partner. Number two, find a house that's not too far away. Number three, find a job that will pay the bills. And you might say, well, that's totally unrealistic, Paul. Totally unrealistic. Well, I'm just throwing out some challenging thoughts for discussion over lunch today. But if we really got God's plan, would it not reorientate fundamentally the way that we think? And you say, well, actually, I'm... What if I can't find a job where I'm living? Well, and let's say you've got a range of options. You've got a couple of cities you could go to. If we really understand God's big plan, what's the number one thing we want to check out first? Is there a good gospel church where I can partner in one of those cities? And that'll help me decide which one I want to go to. Or is there a group of people who are about to plant a church there that I can actually invest my time in and help a work happen. Life is, is short and precious. The enemy is real. And so we don't want to waste our valuable time. We want to redeem it for the days are evil. We want to live our lives with gospel intentionality because so the kingdom of God will grow. So firstly, wisely using our time. Secondly, knowing the Lord's will. And thirdly, if we want to live carefully, we should be filled with the Spirit. Verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, it might be at this stage, uh, all this talk of careful living, of intentional time use, of Bible study, might all sound a bit overwhelming. But Paul finishes off these applications with just this wonderful command. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And obviously the first thing to note is the contrast. Instead of getting drunk on wine, 
we should be filled with the Spirit. Now, 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 my legal friends, this does not leave the door open to drunkenness through beer or spirits. I believe it's, it's against drunkenness. Um, and let's face it, if you're trying to survive behind enemy lines in a battle zone, it's not a very smart idea to get drunk, is it? If there's an enemy out there that's trying to harm you and hurt you, you're a fool if you go out and get blind drunk. Alcohol is a depressant. It decreases the effectiveness of the higher functions of our brain. Speech becomes slurred. Judgment uh, becomes distorted. Self-control and inhibitions are decreased, which is, of course, why it's very popular uh, for stag weekends. This is not a good state to be in when surrounded by enemies who want to do you harm. Instead of being under the influence of excess alcohol, the wise Christian actually... uh, who wants to live carefully, will avoid drunkenness and instead seek to come under the influence and the control of the Holy Spirit. See, the presence of the Holy Spirit will be the exact opposite to drunkenness. The Holy Spirit is at work to heighten the higher functions of our brain, to help us to, um, to bring our speech and our actions and our lives under self-control. If drunkenness leads to debauchery, then the work of the Spirit leads us to holiness and godliness. And here's the joyful thing. If you're feeling, oh, this list of commands is a bit overwhelming, uh, Paul says, look, it's the Holy Spirit who empowers all of this. All these commands of chapter 4 and 5 are not to be done with our own sort of uh, limited, feeble resources and our limited sort of um, desires. No, it is to be lived out with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit both manifests the presence of God in our lives and empowers it. You see this back in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The Spirit brings power into the life of the believer. He fills our lives with all the fullness of Christ, enabling and empowering all these things that have been taught. But we are called to cooperate with the Spirit. Uh, The Spirit does not uh, possess us so that we become automatons. We need to cooperate with the Spirit. We were told earlier, um, do not grieve the Spirit, but instead seek the Lord's will through His Word in order to find out what pleases the Lord. And then ask God to fill you through the work of His Spirit. Be filled. Is this, it's a command, but it's a, com- it's a command to receive. It's a funny command, that isn't it? It's a command to be receptive. Allow, be desirous of the, the, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And what's interesting to me is that it's a corporate command to the whole church. It's plural. It's a command that the church should be open to the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is a continual command. 
It has the sense of keep on being filled. Keep on being receptive to the Spirit. Keep being open to the, to the person of the Spirit in your church. And it has also the sense of, of completeness, of being completely filled by the Spirit. That we should be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, it says into Ephesians. Wow. What an amazing thing. That the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, desires to fill this church and to fill up our lives. What would this look like? How do you know that you've got a Spirit-filled church? Well, I think if you become, if you, if you had, I hadn't looked at Ephesians 5, it would be very interesting what sort of list we'd come up with. I bet you we wouldn't have come up with this list. I remember how confusing it was when I was at high school and uh, it was a phase where sort of the charismatic movement was sweeping through and um, had, had lots of stories uh, from friends who went to other churches and they came, you know, and told me amazing things how suddenly they began speaking in tongues and uh, experienced all sorts of strange things and, and sort of very exotic things happened in their church meetings while in our meetings we just sing songs about Jesus. And, um, you know, thanked God. We just did that. And people lived in harmonious relationships. That's all we did. So what is the mark of a spirit-filled church? Well, three things here, quickly. Firstly, singing. Singing, verse 19. There's actually three words here that basically boil down to singing. Speaking to one another. Singing and making music in your hearts. This is the great mark of living Christian faith. God's people are a singing people. And this singing has a horizontal and corporate component. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. As we sing songs together, do you know what's happening? We are encouraging and edifying one another. That's why it's really important what we sing. Uh, what we sing almost is more important than the preacher because we're going to keep singing these songs over and over and over again. So they should be good words because these words will go deeper into our hearts and lives. And as we sing, we're singing to one another. And it is so encouraging, isn't it? Uh, to sing with this many people over again, singing on your own. I find singing on my own a bit trickier. I love coming to church because I get to sing with God's people. We get to sing to one another. With all sorts of different songs, hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. The sign of spirit in, in people's lives is they sing spirit songs, it says. But it's not only just this horizontal and corporate component, but the verse goes on to say that it is a vertical and a personal one. Sing and make music in your hearts to who? To the Lord. It is a wholehearted response of our lives to the Lord. So as we sing, we are singing worship, praise, adoration, delight to God. And, and, and you know, when you go to a funeral where it, there aren't many Christians there, you know it, don't you? You know it. The singing is miserable. It's measly. It's really poor. But when you go to a funeral or go to a church where there are spirit-filled people, what's the singing like? Well, it's just like here. 
It's just like here. People singing from their whole beings as a, as a, as a fruit of, of, a lo- of a week long of worship, coming to worship and, and adore God. It, it is, is God-focused. It is one another-focused. It is corporate. It is personal. And that is, my friends, a definite sign of a spirit-filled church. Secondly, Thanksgiving. Verse 20. Another mark of a spirit-filled church is a church that is full of thanksgiving. Giving thanks constantly. In a sense, here's something that defines the Christian life. Uh, you know a Christian because there's someone who's, who's, who always seems to be thankful to God. Constantly thankful for everything, it says. In every experience of life, the Christian has always great cause and reason to thank God. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we, we come to God thankfully because Jesus came and died for us. Because Jesus was raised for us. We come to God only in and through the, the, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ who dealt with our sin. We thank God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we address our thanksgiving to God the Father. And isn't that exactly how Paul started this letter in Ephesians chapter 1? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The second great mark of a spirit-filled church and a spirit-filled life is a life of thanksgiving to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, and this was a big surprise to me, Verse 21. Do you see what it is? Submission. Verse 21. I don't think any of us would have picked this. Well, maybe some of you would because you've been Bible students for a long time. Verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the original language, in the Greek, this is all part of the same sentence. Being filled with the Spirit has these three marks. Singing, thanksgiving, and submission. A mark of a spirit-filled life and a spirit-filled church is that we joyfully recognize um, the different authorities that God places in our life and we submit to them. And really, this is the link verse. We're going to come back to this next week as we think about uh, the, the command to wives to submit to their husbands and the week after that, the children submit to their parents and then also the, the respect that slaves are called to have to their masters. And elsewhere in the Bible, we're told to uh, submit to uh, the, the, the authorities and rulers of our nation. The Lord has built in all sorts of different authority structures. And the mark of a spirit-filled person is not a wild, crazy person. And I think in our heads, if we've watched too much bad Christian TV, this is what we think. When the Spirit comes, people do wild and crazy things. Well, here's evidence of, of the work of the Spirit. Singing, thanksgiving, and a joyful submission to God-given authority in a person's life. More of that next week. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples? He said this, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Jesus knew that this present age 
is an age that could be described as an evil age. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. You know, we know that life is short. We also know that the Lord Jesus is returning. And we don't know when that day could be. It could be that we will not experience death. In fact, the Lord may come back and take us to be with him. And Jesus said in Mark 13, be on guard, be alert. It's the same word of being careful here in Ephesians. You do not know when that time will come. It could be this week. We don't know. Life is short and precious. The enemy is real. So we should live life carefully. Are we going to do that? We're going to be careful how we live this week. Are we going to redeem the time for him? Are we going to make sure we really understand his will and pray that we'll really get it? Really get it. That our lives will then be shaped and ordered according to his will. Not my will, but your will be done, Jesus said. Are we going to be seeking the filling of the Holy Spirit to live this out? Uh, one of the things I love about Edinburgh is, is you've got to love a town that puts preachers uh, as statues on the street, haven't you? I, I don't know many cities in the, in the world where you've got preachers on pedestals. I'm not looking for one. I don't think I'll ever get there, right? Um, You know, if you do a new toilet block, you might want to name it after me. That's fine. No one's going to do a statue of Risi. But there is also a statue to a guy called James Simpson. Have you seen it? On Princess Street. James Simpson, born in Bathgate, 1811. He died in Edinburgh at the age of 58 in 1870. So James Simpson was a big man of his time. That's why they put him on a statue, I think. He was the professor of uh, midwifery, or obstetrics, we call it today. He was a physician to Queen Victoria. He discovered um, the anesthetic properties of chloroform. Every woman who's had any help during childbirth should just thank God for James Simpson. Anyone who's ever had an anesthetic should be thanking God for James Simpson. James Simpson was a Christian. He was a Christian. He was a great man. He was, he, he, he was hailed as a great man in his day. He was ordered a knighthood and all that sort of stuff. But he writes somewhere that he counted as his uh, greatest privilege that he looked back on was to be an elder of St. Columbus Free Church up on the mound there. Now here's a man who knew the days were evil and lived his life with gospel purpose. He did good to the world, but he knew what was most important. Walk carefully. Redeem the time. Know the Lord.